Thanks for coming out. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, we're going to listen to the word this morning. Um, if you are a guest with us, um, welcome. Uh, my name is Cassidy Hastings. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of sharing out of the word this morning. If you are a guest, wanted to let you know right after the service, if uh, you have a few minutes to stick around, um, you can, uh, right before the evangelism class starts, um, we will be meeting in the fireside room, which is out these doors, through the double doors, um, the, the room with a little fireplace in there. Uh, we have a thing called Next Steps, and that's just a place where we can kind of, if you have any questions about the church, you can kind of ask those. We kind of tell you a little, about, uh, a little bit about who we are and everything. So if you have a few minutes to stick around for that, you can do that, and then head over to room three uh, for the Heart of Evangelism class. So lots of great things going on today. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Ephesians, and in your, um, if, if you have your tablet or your phone and you have the app, um, there are sermon notes in there that you can take. Um, so there's some fill-in-the-blank things that, uh, that are in there, and then you can save those to your device. Make sure you save those to your device, because if you don't, then they go away later. Um, but you can take the sermon notes in there. And also, in the sermon notes section of the app, there's uh, a thing in there that says questions about the sermon. And what that is, is that will generate an email to iron at sierrabible.org. Iron is our podcast um, that, that we have, and it's now available in iTunes, which is cool. So if you go to iTunes uh, store, you can search for that in the podcast section and find us there. Um, but we, every week, we answer questions about the sermon. And so far, I've been having to generate all those questions. So I really encourage you to submit your questions. So you can just click that button there, um, or throughout the week, uh, as you think of things, um, you, can, you can send those to iron at sierrabible.org. So uh, we're, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, you can also check that out in the app as well. It'll go right to, to Ephesians 2 for you. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. And if you are able, please stand as we read from the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. God, I pray right now that as we come to your word, as we approach this text, God, that you would really work in our minds and our hearts to receive what Paul is saying here. God, it's not a pretty picture, but I pray that you would just work to help us maybe see this in a deeper, darker even way than maybe we have before. Not to beat ourselves up, but so that we can see your glory even brighter in your mercy and grace shown through Jesus Christ. Open our minds and hearts to your word this morning. May your spirit teach us, and may you be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1946, a Christmas movie came out that didn't do very well when it first was released, but since it has become a Christmas classic. Anybody know what it is? It is A Wonderful Life. Now, you may be wondering why a message entitled The Walking Dead is starting out with an illustration of 
It's a Wonderful Life, but hang with me. There's actually a theory that George Bailey was a zombie. I'm just kidding. That's not where I'm going with this. <laughs> but if you have seen the movie, you'll know that, that the story does follow the life of George Bailey. It, it recounts some of the major highlights from his childhood and as he was growing up. It also shows how he had always had big dreams to travel and to leave Bedford Falls, which is where he lived. He had these ideas to do great things, but, but things always seemed to keep him trapped in Bedford Falls, and over time, he begins to resent that. And this frustration in the movie culminates in a set of circumstances where his uncle misplaces a large amount of money that he was supposed to deposit for the buildings and building and loan, and that threatens to land George in jail. He's so distraught with his situation and frustrated with his life that he wishes that he had never been born. And that wish is granted in the movie, and George gets a glimpse into what the world would have been like had he never existed. This alternate reality shakes him to the core. He's terrified of how different things would be if he hadn't have been there. But at the end of the movie, he returns to Bedford Fall, admits the same trying circumstances that he left before the glimpse with a newfound gratitude for life. Being granted a look at what could have been exponentially deepened his appreciation for his current reality. Let me repeat that. Being granted a look at what could have been exponentially deepened his appreciation for his current reality. His ability to stare the bleakness of a possible reality in the face put his actual circumstances in a whole different light. And in today's passage, we see Paul reminding the Ephesian Christians of a reality that could have been for them if, it, if God had not intervened. And in fact, it's different because this was their actual reality before God stepped in. And it's in looking this scary, ugly, dark reality right in the face that Paul will contrast the life the believers in Ephesus now experience because the grace and the mercy of Jesus. We'll see in the passage today that the darker we understand our spiritual condition without Christ, the brighter his grace and his mercy shine. By way of context, the whole first chapter of Ephesians, Paul has been describing the awesomeness of God and his plan to save a people for himself and his the glorious riches and power that are for believers because of Jesus. Paul gets so caught up in the awesomeness of God that we just sang about <laughs> that he can't stop trying to describe him. And actually, verses 3 through 14 in, in chapter 1 are one sentence in the Greek. And as he continues in this letter, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 are also one sentence in the Greek. This is going to be important. The subject in this seven verse, eight verse sentence, though, is God in verse four, and the main verb is made alive in verse five. What he's really emphasizing in this part is that God has made believers alive through Christ. He has raised them up. He has seated them with Christ. Through the first 10 verses of chapter two, Paul's going to be contrasting believers' life before Christ with their life after Christ. 
And we'll see some of these parallel and contrasting statements over the next couple of weeks. But specifically in our passage today, Paul is setting a dark, dark background upon which he'll contrast God's saving work in the following verses. There's actually a shift from talking about their present and their future realities at the end of chapter 1 to remembering their past reality without Christ in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Kind of picture Paul in his overflowing and overwhelming description of God and his plan out of kind of the corner of his eye, catching a glimpse of unredeemed humanity. And it's in drastic contrast to the holiness of God. In these verses, he's reminding the church at Ephesus of what life was like before God saved them. And it is not a pretty picture. We'll see him describe what life without Christ looks like in some very vivid ways. And in the first verse here, we see that without Christ, we are spiritually dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You is referring to his Gentile readers, but as we'll see in verse 3, he includes himself, Jewish believers, and all of humankind in this helpless state. So it's not just about this. But he says, you were dead, not you were unfortunate, or you were mistaken, or you were mostly dead. Anybody remember that from The Princess Bride? <laughs> Mostly dead. I actually kind of looked that up just to see um, what the context was in the, in the movie, and, and this is the quote from the movie. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. We are not mostly dead. Without Christ, we are all dead. Paul says, you were dead. And this isn't talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. In order to understand this, we have to look back to the garden. Humanity was created to be in perfect fellowship with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve were in God's presence. However, when the first couple sinned, they were cast out of the garden and out of God's presence. They were separated from the Creator and the source of all life. And when you're separated from the source of all life, death is the inevitable result. Adam and Eve were still physically walking around after they were kicked out of the garden, but spiritually speaking, they were dead as a doornail because they were alienated from the life of God. Have you noticed the big zombie craze that's been kind of increasing over the last decade or so? kind of been around for a while and everything, but I feel like maybe it's because of media or something. Um, It just seems like there's tons more stuff coming out. Uh, Just within the last couple of years, movies like World War Z um, and Warm Bodies, there's even a movie called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. (laughs) Like, I was like, come on, can't you get more creative than that? (laughs) But uh, I guess it describes what the movie's about, so that's good, Uh, very clear. There's also been TV shows, The Walking Dead, um, The Fear of the Walking Dead, which I actually had to look that up because I wasn't sure if those were separate things, but sure enough, they are. Um, Those have been hugely crazed, like kind of going crazy, tons of people following that. Um, I've actually seen around town um, bumper stickers on cars that say zombie outbreak response team. 
So that's good to know that there's people who are trained to take zombies out if something like that ever happens. But, um, but there really seems to be this fascination with zombies. These are movies and shows about beings that are dead, but they act like they're alive. And the infection that killed them is easily spread. Again, I'm not sure exactly what the obsession is with this, but I think people are fascinated by questions like, what happens if an infection spreads so much that it wipes out all but a remnant? What does it look like for someone to be alive and dead at the same time? How ugly and scary will the distortion be of those who are affected? Will the remnant survive? Will a cure be discovered? I hate to tell fans of these movies and shows, but this is already a reality. There's an infection in every single one of us. There is no remnant that has survived. It's uglier than you can possibly imagine. It distorts humanity in a way that you can't even understand. And there's nothing whatsoever we can do to cure ourselves. Sin has made humanity truly a real life walking dead. Now, physical death entered God's perfect creation because of sin, and we understand physical death even as a separation of spirit and body. But what Paul is talking about in this verse is our spiritual deadness because of what sin has done. And that spiritual deadness has been passed down to every single human being who has been born of two human parents. In Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread to all men because all sinned. And here's the thing about being dead, about death. Do you know what dead people can do? They can do nothing. (laughs) Dead people can do nothing. Again, we're not mostly dead. We are dead. When I taught youth group, I used to use this illustration of of a string. And so I'd have this string, and I would kind of talk about how when, when God, so God's kind of up here, okay, source of life, uh, source of all that's good. Uh, when he created humanity, humanity was intended to be in perfect relationship with God. We had this fellowship. We were able to be in his presence. We were not separated. But what happened when we sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, is that sin cut us off from that relationship and we died spiritually. And there's nothing at all that this string can do to reconnect itself to the source of life. As much as it tries, as much as it tries to be a good string and help people, it cannot fix the status of being disconnected from the source of life. The only possible way that we can have a reconnection with God is if there is an action that stems from the source of life that comes to provide a way for us to have a restored relationship with Him. Without some action originating from God, from the source of all life, we'd be stuck in this helpless, 
and hopeless eternity or state for all of eternity. Now, some of you may be thinking, but I know people who are not yet believers, who are kind and moral people. They give money to some great causes and help people who are need in need. They're nice to their spouse. They're good parents. How can you say they're dead? Listen, all humanity is created in the image of God. And despite sin's effects on creation, the imago Dei is still evident in every human. So even people who are spiritually dead can do good things. But like I said, doing good things or, quote, being a good person does not revive you spiritually. In fact, in passages like this and other passages in the New Testament, we see that there's actually no such thing as a good person because we're all spiritually dead because of sin. The one and the only thing that revives someone spiritually is an intervening act of God. So my questions for us this morning as we think about this is, what do you feel that you contribute to your salvation? Hopefully you're seeing that the answer, hopefully, is nothing. (laughs) But without Christ, we're spiritually dead. And because of that, without Christ, we follow the world, Satan, and our flesh following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In these verses, Paul references three influences that are at work directing unredeemed humanity. These forces try to keep people operating in a way that doesn't recognize God's rightful rule as the creator. We'll see that two of these forces are external and one is internal. And because they're both inside and outside of every person, Paul is painting the picture that humanity can't escape apart from God's work. Through mentioning these enemies, Paul's saying, you were totally lost and utterly hopeless without Christ. And the first enemy that he mentions is the world, following the course of this world. The world system includes the patterns, systems, values, and behaviors that are in opposition to what God has said. It's a lifestyle that sees self rather than God as the ruler. It's a system that fluidly defines right and wrong rather than living by God's standard. It's a worldview that sees only the present and doesn't consider what's ahead eternally. It's a way of living that is grounded solely in this present age. Pastor Carl's been using this diagram to kind of explain how Paul's understanding um, certain aspects of of this already but not yet kingdom. And, And this world system is characterized by just the stuff on the left here. The flesh, sin, death. Regardless of what culture you're in, there are external pressures to operate in ways that are ignorant of or even rebellious to God. And this is a strong external pressure on all humans. That's why throughout the New Testament, believers are admonished to let 
to not let the external pressure of the world mold and shape them. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in 1 John two fifteen through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this part in his letter to the Ephesian Christians, Paul is saying that before God saved them, they followed the ways of the world. And for believers, for you and me who have put our faith in Jesus, that includes us. We followed the world. We valued what the world valued. We worshiped what the world worshiped. And we also see here that we were also following Satan. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The air here is understood by the readers to be this space between earth and heaven. God dwelled in the heavens, but evil spirits dwelled in the space between heaven and earth. New Testament scholar P.T. O'Brien states, The kingdom of the air, then, is another way of indicating the heavenly realm, which, according to Ephesians 6, 12, is the abode of those principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness against which the people of Christ wage war. Although his rule is is restrained by God's sovereignty and he will one day be done away with, Satan is the current ruler of this domain. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Satan likes, he desires to foment rebellion against God. All the way from the garden, he tries to get people to doubt God's goodness and to live independently from him. He tempts us to be our own masters and to live by our own desires. He plants evil and wicked thoughts into the minds of people. Even though the power of Satan was defeated at the cross, Satan is still a powerful opponent of believers. And he still has great influence even in this age of the Spirit. That's why throughout the New Testament, believers are told to resist him. Ephesians 6, 10-12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then in First Peter, <clears throat> oh, wrong, wrong. I have so many cross-references in this message. First Peter 5, 
8 through 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In our passage this morning, Paul's saying to his readers that before God saved them, they followed Satan. And that includes you and me. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, that seems a little extreme. But following Satan doesn't have to look like performing human sacrifices in the darkness of your basement. It can look like living a good moral life apart from the recognition and the submission to the lordship of Jesus. There are only two possible teams, spiritually speaking, and each team has a captain. Because you're either alive or dead spiritually, there's only two options. Then spiritually speaking, you either follow Satan or you follow Jesus. And this was our status before God stepped in. But these two external forces aren't the only ones at work directing unredeemed humanity. There's also an enemy within, the flesh among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. As I mentioned, when Paul says, among whom we all once lived, he's letting his Gentile readers know that this helpless and hopeless state apart from Christ applies to himself and applies to other Jewish believers. Because without the saving work of Christ, even the chosen people of God we're still lost and desperate because of sin. This third internal force is the flesh, our fallen, self-centered human nature. God designed his creation to function in a certain way. But sin reorients our life not around God and his commands, but around our own selfish passions and desires. The flesh is the voice that says, do what you want. Do what makes you feel good. Do what you think is best. It doesn't matter how it's going to affect other people. And it certainly doesn't matter what God says. Our flesh is the rash and impulsive part of ourselves. And without Christ, we followed the whims of our passions and desires. That's why throughout the New Testament, believers are told to put the flesh to death. Romans eight, thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. <clears throat> then in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Verse 24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, have killed it with its passions and desires. Here Paul is saying to his readers that before God saved them, they were at the mercy of their selfish passions and desires. And that includes you and me too. 
We prioritized our own wants over others. We rode the waves of our impulses. We cared more about ourselves than anyone else. We didn't want to reorient our lives around God and his commands. We were fine just like we were. In all of this, Paul is saying we were royally messed up apart from Jesus. As believers, we still battle against these influences, but we're no longer directed by them. Without Christ's intervention, we were controlled by these forces, whether we realized it or not. So some questions for us this morning. How are these forces currently influencing you? Are you battling against them? Or are you being controlled by them? We're not even done yet. Not only were we spiritually dead and did we follow the world and Satan and our flesh, but without Christ, we are children of wrath. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The word children here indicates a close relationship to one's parents. One commentary says, unbelievers have a close relationship not with God, but with his wrath. Disobedience and unbelief lead to the wrath of God. Now, some people start to squirm when, when people start talking about the wrath of, wrath of God because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> some people have questions like, how can a God who loves people also show wrath? And in order to wrestle with this, we must understand that God's wrath is rooted in His holiness and in His justice. God hates what sin has done to his creation. Because he is a holy, perfect God, he can't just pretend sin doesn't exist. Furthermore, his holiness demands that sin must be taken care of as a matter of justice. He can't just sweep it under the rug or that would violate his holy and his just character. God's wrath is how he exacts justice towards sin and maintains his holiness. And the punishment that sin necessitates is death. We read about that in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. And without Jesus in the picture, this is exactly what you and me and all of humanity deserve. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress suppress the truth. And then in Romans 3.23, many, many of us have heard this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all one, every single person besides Jesus is 100% deserving of death. We are all truly children of wrath apart from Christ. However, God is not only just, but he's also merciful. And he created a plan that would satisfy his justice without compromising his holiness or eradicating all of humanity. He would send his perfect son to take the punishment that we deserved. The only possible way for us to escape this reality of God's wrath is through faith in Jesus. 
at the cross, Jesus took the just wrath of God towards sin on our behalf. And when we put our faith in him, we're removed from being under the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us believers for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's wrath in the Bible is often referred to as being contained in these containers and being poured out. If his wrath is a massive bucket of water, faith in Jesus is the only shelter that we can stand under to avoid drowning when it is poured out. That's why Paul says we were by nature children of wrath. This is no longer a reality for the Ephesian Christians, but it was good for them to remember their status before God stepped in. The scary thing is for those who have not put their faith in Jesus, they remain under the wrath of God. Romans 2, 5 says, But you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment it will be revealed. And then in John three, thirty-six, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We are all deserving of God's wrath. So my question for us this morning is, where are you in relation to God's wrath? Are you sheltered because you've put your faith in Jesus? Or are you standing out in the open waiting for the bucket to dump? Everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) These three verses may be some of the darkest most depressing verses in the entire Bible. But the encouraging part is that they're setting the scene for what Paul is going to be contrasting. As I mentioned at the beginning, the subject of this long sentence in verses 1 through 7 is God, and the main verb is made alive. So the story is not over. The focus isn't ultimately on our past, but on God's work. But before we rush to the beauty of God's mercy and grace, we should come face to face with the ugliness of our helplessness and our hopelessness apart from him. Like George Bailey looking at a reality that could have been, deepening his appreciation of his actual reality, so the darker we understand our spiritual situation without Christ, the brighter his grace and his mercy will shine. If you're listening to this message this morning and you haven't responded to faith with faith to Jesus, he's inviting you to come to him and make these descriptions part of your past. He's offering you life and a new way of being. Take some time to wrestle with this, to seriously consider this, 
And if you're listening to this and you already have responded by faith to Jesus, let this reality, don't rush past it. Let it sink in. Let it eradicate every single ounce of pride that we may be tempted to think we have for our salvation. Let it give us a bone-deep humility in sharing this good news with others. Let it deepen our awe, our wonder, and appreciation and worship of the fact that our salvation is all because of Him. If this background kind of represents what we, that we think maybe we had something to do, this isn't stark white. This is kind of off-white a little bit. If we think that this kind of represents that we're an okay person, we're not too bad, we may believe that the work of Jesus isn't that impressive. We may think, yeah, it's, it's good. I'm thankful for him and things like that. But if we understand the deep darkness of our spiritual situation apart from Christ, it will make Jesus' mercy and grace shine so much brighter in our lives. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. As the worship team comes up to close our service, I just want us to take a moment to do some quiet reflection in our soul. Where are you in relation to what we've talked about this morning? Do you need to respond? Are you under, out from under the shelter of faith in Jesus, awaiting the coming wrath of God? Jesus is inviting you to come to him, to trade your deadness for life. And if you are a, a believer, let this sink in. Let it contrast. And let it give us a deeper appreciation of how great God is in his plan for salvation. Let me pray. God, even coming before you, is because of your grace and your mercy. God, apart from Jesus, we are completely lost. And I thank you for passages. I thank you for dark passages like this in, in the Bible, God, that, that show that it's not about us. That our salvation, we should not be prideful. We should not look down on those who are not yet believers. We should fall on our faces in awe of you. And we should be driven to share in humility, not from a, an ivory tower, but from a place of humility to share this grace and this mercy and this message of good news with others. And God, I pray that all of us, wherever we're at, that we would respond appropriately this morning and that you would be glorified through it all. We thank you for your amazing unfathomable grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.